Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week, our guest is Greg Buchanan, and it's a good, deep, rambly writing chat. Uh, He's just published his debut novel, It's Sixteen Horses, and we talk about how he changes his writing for different mediums and and what he's learned from writing on comics and on video games and now to novels. Also, we talk about genre, quite a lot about genre, and how he learns the rules then to break them. And he gets quite philosophical uh, and a little bit mindful about things if it's the raw initial drafting stage and I, I haven't made some kind of deal with someone else i'm just doing it um i tend to especially recently it'd be a bit easier on myself because when i was being hard on myself it made no difference so why be unhappy sort of the the, the outcome i sort of made with myself which might be a, a kind of healthier way of viewing things than sort of beating myself up all the time like i used to there is more with greg buchanan in this week's writer's routine Yes. Welcome along. It's Writer's Routine, where we take a look inside an author's working day. My name is Dan Simpson. Thank you for finding us and listening. Now, before we crack on with Greg Buchanan, uh, this Tuesday, which is, well, it's the 29th of June, depending on when you listen, uh, I'm hosting an online writing seminar at the London Book Fair. Uh, They've got an incredible amount of events covering all different forms of books and writing, I'm doing one called Playing With Prose, Form, Character, Setting. Now, it's only 35 minutes long. Uh, there's a Q&A at the end as well. It's with the author Michael Arditi, who I've actually interviewed for this show. That's in the bag, coming out in a little while. So he's coming on. He, he did Easter and also just published uh, The Anointed. Also, Helen Corner Bryant, who set up Cornerstones, the, uh, the writing consultancy. She's coming on. And also Magdalene Abraha from the publisher Jacaranda, uh, who are doing huge things in the writing world at the moment. She is especially uh, really groundbreaking. She was voted the bookseller's uh, rising star a few years ago. She's coming on. We'll be talking about planning and plotting, about form, about character. And I, I believe it's free. I think all the online events are free. It's on Tuesday the 29th at 1015 uh, you all need to sign up in advance, I think. Uh, so you can do that by searching for London Book Fair online. Uh, and hopefully I'll see... Well, hopefully you'll see me Tuesday the 29th uh, about 
Now this week we're taking a look at Greg Buchanan's writing day. His debut is uh, 16 Horses, all about 16 horses. They're found buried in a field and then the chain of crimes that sweeps through the community and how they're all connected. It introduces Alec Nichols and Cooper Allen. Uh, Greg started by scripting video games. He worked on No Man's Sky. If you know your, your, your games, it was it's like an endless video game. You explore the universe that you can never stop exploring. So there's different storylines for each of the planets. It's quite incredible. He's also written games on Brexit and the US election. He's written comics too. This is his debut novel. We, there's quite a lot of genre chat in this. How much he works in the limits of them when he breaks those limits. Why it's important to stick with those limits early on as well. You can hear why not every day needs to be huge for him. Sometimes a good idea in the shower lets you know that you're on the right track. And we get into it, as we always do, with what Greg Buchanan sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. So I write in a lot of different locations. Um, I'll sometimes write in my kitchen, sometimes in my lounge. Um, Before the pandemic, I quite liked going to cafes and even sometimes kind of on little work trips. I'd sort of go to parks and things. Um, But I I will, even before the pandemic, sometimes write in my office um, where I am right now. So um, in my office, I have uh, a desk, um, a Mac computer in front of me, a couple of lamps. Um, I've got a few bookcases um, full of miscellaneous books, um, some kind of books that have survived throughout the years and gone from house to house with me and some that are a lot newer. Um, I have a giant thing of horses that my sister uh, bought me for my birthday a few years ago uh, when it all got announced um, so there's like 16 different variations of horse drawings and paintings um, from like a little Ferrari picture to like a kind of cave painting of horse so that's that's kind of a fun little inspirational thing um, and there's also a cat tree um, for when my kittens like come running the room and can stop playing and a little armchair as well to sort of sit in and read if I get bored which is frequently. Uh, aside from the horse uh, drawings is there anything inspirational in there or maybe anything inspirational out the window just something that uh, gets the energy going sure definitely um so um i have a, a little wooden cat thing which i just really like the look of um and it's also kind of asmr and it spins around i got it from a kind of charity shop and stuff so i'm kind of bored i'll kind of spin that around a little bit um for um inspirational views uh, the view from my window is quite stunning um so i, I moved to the scottish borders earlier this year um, and I've got kind of a hilltop view outside my window uh, with a kind of church steeple in front of it. It's very idyllic. Um, but likewise, if there's sort of a lot of rain or kind of stormy weather, it will likewise respond well to whatever weather conditions it sort of gets. Um, so um, especially because I do quite a reasonable amount of kind of nature writing in my work, it's, it's, it's always quite good to just look out the window. Aside from inspiration, what about uh, plotting and, and planning? If I were to walk into your room, would I have any clue as to what you were writing about? Um, I mean, like a whiteboard, uh, 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 post-it notes on the walls? So I experimented with having a whiteboard, and we still have one up in the hallway, but my um, fiancé kept on kind of vandalising it with uh, kind of silly drawings and messages and stuff, which meant that and I, I never quite had the heart to kind of wipe them out, so I stopped using the whiteboard as much. Um, but um, I, I got a um, bulletin board, but I'll use it temporarily. So in certain stages of plotting, either earlier on or if I've sort of hit a bit of a bump and I want to kind of analyze what's going on with everything, um, I'll write various beats out on small index cards um, and put them up on the bulletin board and move them around. But I, I tend to just take a photo of it then because I found I don't really touch it for several months, so I might as well take it down. Um, 
And um, so, yeah, that's kind of in terms of planning materials. Um, most of the rest of my kind of notes for plotting, I tend to just do in notebooks and stuff. So um, depends on how tidy I've been and whether they're lying around a lot or not. Um, and I tend to, likewise, I, I, I tend to have one kind of main notebook going on at a time, but my one of my cats has taken to really enjoying sitting on it whenever it's open. So that's sort of become, <laughs> I sort of shifted methods about whatever the cats are currently obsessed with and then can't really use anymore because I don't quite have the heart to kick them off the, the open notepad. Uh, well, I'm, I'm the reverse of you. Me and my girlfriend just got our first ever cat and uh, like a few weeks ago. And she, especially when we're working from home, she just spends all her time desperately trying to get onto the laptop. So <laughs> it's get off, move yourself. Yeah, I, 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 oh, yeah. My mind mine did that as well, especially early on. And I, I heard, I don't know if this is true, but I like to think that this is true. So I'm not going to try and find out otherwise. Um, but I, I heard that part of the reason young animals, especially like doing stuff like that. So if you're typing on a keyboard or if you're sort of paying a lot of attention to a, a notepad, they kind of want to mimic what you're doing. They don't really understand oh, okay. why, but they're kind of interested in joining in, which I find quite sweet. That's, um, that's more exciting. Yeah, more and sweeter than... I just assumed it was because it was warm and and oh, there's probably probably that as well. Yeah, but that but that is that is sweeter. Um, listen, you mentioned you're working on a on a on a MacBook, was it, and on notebooks? What software are you writing on? Sure. So um, I I I change up my methods all the time because I I think I find my sort of solution to writer's block or whatever writer's, whatever it really is, um, is sort of just switching up the method entirely. So sometimes I'll write with a kind of pen and paper, um, a long draft with that, I'll do a lot of notes with it and type up. And the act of typing it up to, for example, I, I tend to just go directly into Microsoft Word, um, tends to sort of act as a kind of MIDI edit in itself, um, in that I'll, if I can understand my own handwriting, which is sort of a, a slight problem. <laughs> um, and um, so, yeah, I mostly use Microsoft Word. Um, I've experimented with using stuff like Scrivener and other applications, but I always found they are very, I kind of want to be the kind of person using something like that because they look very organized, but I, I find that kind of chaos of trying to figure out where that bit of that draft is, um, forgetting about something for a while, finding it later on kind of weirdly productive in that it can sort of lead to unintended consequences um, that are creative. Um, Lately, actually, I've been experimenting with a, I got one of those kind of free write devices, if you've heard of those, this kind of little, they're, they're little kind of dumb devices in that they just have kind of word processing on them and nothing else. Um, and the battery life is sort of huge, it lasts for sort of weeks. Um, I'm finding that quite useful for rough drafting because it's sort of a bit awkward to use. And once you've typed stuff, it's very hard to kind of edit it on the device. So it's sort of stuck in there. And it, uh, a major problem for me is tinkering with stuff as I go. So um, creating artificial limitations for myself where I have to just leave the material as it is in order to be able to then edit it later. Um, I've been finding quite useful to get ahead in my word count. But does that change the way that you do your first draft? If you know that you can't tinker and edit as you go, is that making you write it the first time a little cleaner, a little more finalized? It did early on. So when I first started using that device, I found it was sort of count. Yeah, it wasn't fulfilling the purpose I wanted to because I was just massively slowing down because I wanted to perfect every line. Um, I think I sort of... Um, there were a few weeks where I did snippets of writing in between sort of time off, you know, going for walks, um, reading books, playing games and so on. Um, and once I, and I didn't overly think through those things because they were just going to be snippets um, that I was working on. But I, I found when I read them again, that there was very little difference in quality a few weeks on reading those versus some things that I've more heavily edited as I was going. 
Um, there, there was a bit of a difference, but not enough to justify the amount of time I was spending kind of deleting material, self-censoring, being too harsh on myself. Um, so I, I, it, it does alter it, but not as much as I thought it would. Um, and it at least gives me a bit, because you know, I, I, my first book, I, I altered a huge amount after my initial draftings and so on. So I think I'm just kind of interested in experimenting with different methods and seeing kind of what they produce, I guess. You mentioned a second ago, the, uh, the the board that you use to sketch out some plotting when maybe you're finding things a little bit sluggish in the middle and then you take a photo of it. Um, how helpful is that? Is it or is it just the act of writing and then putting up and seeing? Is that what's helpful or is it doing anything more to help you move the plot forward in a, in a, in a different way than you thought you would? Mm, so that's an interesting question. I think, um, I mean, there is partly just the fun of writing out little index cards and kind of trying to arrange them in like a color-coded pretty way. That That's always fun and a useful procrastination in itself. Um, I think I think there's, there's two or three major things that I find useful about doing that. So one is I, I have a rough plan for the entire plot when I start in a story. So I, I know roughly where I'm going to go and the rough kind of major beats. Um, but I, I'm very open to just changing whatever I want based on kind of, I guess, artistic or creative whim when I get to that point. Oh, this will be more interesting. And then I'll, I'll sort of experiment with that. And and I'm very open to sort of doing a mixture of sort of free writing where I, I do what I want and then imposing order on it and thinking through what the implications of that are. So I think I find it's almost like instead of making an in-depth plan for a story before I start, although there is some planning, I'll sort of analyze what I've already done, turn that into a plan. So something I've already done, I'll, I'll turn what I've done so far into a plan and then plan out the rest on the basis of that um, and return to it a few times. So this kind of going back and forth between drafting and, and plotting um, and doing it over again. And I find that very useful. And I find one thing that I started doing in the last few years that I think has made a big difference to my writing is thinking about function. Um, and so my, my work sort of, at least with my, uh, debut novel sort of straddles a line a bit between kind of I guess literary fiction and sort of crime and thriller mystery fiction um, in some ways and different drafts have sort of lent more in one way than the other um, but I find a, a very good way of stopping myself falling too much into either camp is, is doing this exercise because when I analyze those chapters I've done so far I can sort of think what's not just like what happens to them what do these relate to what are they about thematically and so on I can think about things like what's the function of this um one exercise i did that i found really useful um you know there's kind of gcse a level kind of secondary education websites where it like summarizes what happens in books it's like in chapter two this happens chapter three this happens. i found that really useful to read for a lot of different crime novels um and because they sort of focused in a way that academia or kind of reviews and newspapers and coverage in general of, of these books it looks them in a very different way it was focusing on like what happened in terms of the clues in each chapter um, in, in, in isolation. Um, and I sort of thought about my book and was looking at my book and I, and I sort of made some adjustments uh, to the pacing of what I was revealing and when um, on the basis of like one of the times I, I did the, the bullet board ex um, exercise, I just purely listed like what clues, how is the central mystery developed? And I find different ways of sort of representing the story in this kind of structural way to be really helpful to think about it in different ways. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think that's really useful. It, it more, it, I think rather than helping me think of specific ideas and what to write, it almost helps. It's almost better at analyzing what I've already written, which then will give me more abstract ideas for the rest of what I'm going to write, um, based on, on that, if, if any of that made any sense. This is something I've more become aware of, I think in, in 
responses to my work um, from, you know, throughout my time kind of interacting with publishers and agents and so on, but right back through to my EBA course and workshops and showing people my writing in general. To me, there isn't as much, I, I don't care as much in what I'm producing about those kind of genre boundaries and stuff that's as nebulous as literary fiction um, is, is, is something that's a bit unhelpful as a term anyway. But there is something that people can often mean by that. Um, and there is a way in which books are received based on how they're labeled and how they present themselves. That's important, I guess, to be aware of as an author, even if in, in my sort of heart, I don't, you know, I, I kind of want to jump around in lots of different genres. So, I mean, there are elements of, of 16 Horses that sort of, as I, Waterstones did their little kind of um, Waterstones says thing where they summarize the novel in, in their own way. And they sort of reference that it kind of went into horror at points, um, which it does. And then there's kind of a different genre codes beyond even, even crime and thriller literally going on. Um, when I'm thinking about each chapter, um, I suppose what I call one of the more literary elements of the novel, even though any genre can do this, it's just, I think, how it's received and coded by other people, um, is I, I quite like each chapter to be not just about furthering my characters and my overall mystery and plot line. I want it to be about itself, or I want it to be about something that's presented within. Um, so if I'm writing about someone in a supermarket who, and this is one of the chapters in 16 horses who fails to buy something, um, because they, they drop a bottle in a shop and there's a bit of a response to it and the whole situation going on. I, that's as much about class and money and supermarkets and people and how they respond to situations as it is about its further movement in the plot. So, um, thinking through the functionality of it, I'll, I'll have certain aims in how that is represented as well as everything else um, and producing a kind of almost mini kind of short story vignette experience in itself, even outside of the plot. So it could be kind of almost taken in isolation as a short story is, is my aim for some chapters, not all, but but, but some, especially with um, side characters or, or bits that, that lean off the, the main arc with uh, my two protagonists. Is that not making life harder for yourself though? Because in, And not just writing, you know, a 400 page, whatever it is, 400 page, novel where that all needs to have an overarching story but on occasion you're doing it very specifically across maybe 20 pages within a chapter does that not make your life a bit harder as a writer greg oh probably yeah i mean everything i do is probably making my life quite harder so um i mean it was an interesting thing and that this this the, the novel was originally um a lot broader in scope even than it ended up being um and the, the central mystery of the horses and, and what happened to them was almost like one out of like five different kind of major arcs i was going to be pursuing in some kind of huge kind of epic about this town um and and what happened actually and, and why i kind of narrowed it down was um in my writer's workshop i was part of i i present i, I sort of been writing about this town and this place and this novel for a while um and i i got to my horse stuff that I was working on and I showed them that. And then it was sort of, I think there was a sort of a bit of a kind of intervention moment in the group where that, cause I, I, I think it was always been said in these kind of places that I, I never have a shortage of ideas. Um, and, um, it was sort of said like, do you like Greg, couldn't it just be about the horses and, and this plot line rather than this kind of uh, slightly absurd number of things I was going to try and write about in, in different ways, um, which was definitely a very helpful thing. So I, I think a kind of a productive tension between me and, I guess people I work with and, and and people who will read my book is is that attempt to kind of um, kind of burst against the boundaries of, of 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 the scope of the story I'm setting myself and trying to play around with it. Which once again I'm I'm pretty sure most writers do to some extent, but I've I've often been accused of I guess trying to go off on one in different directions. 
Uh, how hard is it? You were speaking about genre a second ago and how maybe that's not always helpful, but it's the way of publishing as an industry and the way of bookshops that things are sorted into um, different genres. And you mentioned Waterstones having, you know, Waterstone says this. How hard is it as a writer to to try and tell your story in the way you want it to be told without ideas of genre and the way these things should be told if they are going to fit into different genres without that getting in the way? So I think before... So, I mean, I, I think I was pretty bad at writing about five or six years ago. And I think this me, I mean, who knows how good at writing I am now, but I, I think I'm definitely a lot better than I was then. And I think a key difference in my development as a writer has been welcoming constraints and how others will receive things as a creative opportunity and as a sort of fundamental part of the process rather than me just sort of doing whatever I want and hoping that people enjoy it afterwards. So, I mean... People always receive stories in different ways. And I've often been unusual in the way I analyze stories, I guess, compared to some people I know in that I quite, I I love things crossing over boundaries of genres. And I I love that play around. Um, And a lot of people do, but as mentioned, like the, you know, there are certainly even constraints in the industry itself about how things are received, how things are kind of marketed, how things are put on shelves. Um, And I think, I mean, there's two different ways of viewing, viewing this. So I think the, early portion of story is particularly important in this um, you can't deviate too much from the initial genre that you've set up but if you're going to set up the genre and, and those expectations i think are most important in like the first third of a novel um, and I, I i heard something that was interesting i think i don't know who said this but i think it was something about game of thrones and so you know game of thrones started with that scene with the kind of white walkers and the undead in the in the snow up north and you saw there were kind of supernatural beings they said that that was very important as an initial bit because without that scene the sudden introduction of magical elements later on would have been rejected by the audience because it wasn't part of like the initial contract that you made with the audience about what the kind of thing this is um and um, there are some things that beautifully play around with that, I think, or, or in really exciting ways play around with that. Like, um, you know, Behind Rise kind of does the opposite in that there are certain elements there that are, are not present early on and, and sort of, you know, part of the, the selling point and marketing of the novel is that it goes in unexpected directions in terms of its genre. Um, but I, I think um, in my writing, so focusing on it particularly early on, there is a through line throughout the novel of, of, of this genre. But it, I, I almost liked playing around with the edges of genre and thinking about what it kind of butts up against. So for example, a crime mystery thriller, um, you know, there are things called cozy crime where the crime and the way it's presented might be a little bit safer, I guess, in terms of its treatment. Um, The nature of police procedural itself is often a kind of, a kind of reasonably conservative genre. It can be in that a a force of order comes in to settle a situation and often the surrounding community you know this my story set in a small seaside town so are many stories set in kind of places ostensibly like that they come into these places and they help fix a scenario sometimes they're even an outsider order is restored it's very kind of greek tragedy in its kind of scope and the way it all functions um and and everyone's happy um but in the real world crimes are often kind of not fully solved um, the whole basis of our court system, at least in the UK, is is on evidence, and you know, very few people admit to crimes. And if they do admit to crimes, you don't fully know the details. You, that's the whole point of police work is figuring out 
clues. And there's a lot of stuff about unreliability and, and not knowing the world that's kind of quite scary about even the nature of investigating a crime, let alone crimes themselves. And one thing I really like in, in crime fiction, especially when stories really go all out on this, is is crime and, and death and murder are scary things. Um, and I was almost surprised at some of the kind of responses to my novel, which have been really good about, about that kind of horror element, because to me, it should be a given that you should treat these things as scary things because they are. Um, and so um, there are there are certain expectations you, you can sort of embrace in, in your use of genre. So you have an eye towards what the audience and what your bookshelves will expect, but you, there's, a, there's a lot of play that can be done, but you, you couldn't be as playful without those expectations existing. Um, and even about the nature of sort of a, you know, a male, female protagonist, you might, you know, who are working together, you always in fiction might think, oh, are they going to be some kind of item or are they going to get together? And I won't spoil the novel, but early on, you know, one of them sort of in their narration rather than sort of the book directly, it's, you know, they don't say out loud, sort of might kind of be vaguely interested in the other one. And there's a kind of question of where will that go? But as with most things in the book, I'm, I'm more interested in kind of having fun um, and exploring why these things are the way they are and turning those, I guess, like I was saying with the stuff about the supermarket and chapters having functions in themselves um what's the function of these tropes why do audiences want these things um and and sort of using those as opportunities um and ideas for things to write about rather than as things kind of holding me back i guess um very quickly on game of thrones by the way i'm gonna come back to that it's just reminded me of something game of thrones is like the per the tv show is the perfect example of pantsing versus plotting have you ever kind of been aware of this this idea this theory oh yeah yeah i've heard that yeah, before, yeah and so uh, george rr R. martin you know is the ultimate pantser and kind of has, has let this sprawling beast <laughs> go and then the tv producers realized they needed to kind of sum it all up and then hastily kind of what you were doing with your um with with uh, the board you know taking a picture of right this is what's happened we need to try and cobble this together um and you could uh, well some some would argue they didn't fully manage it uh, in, in the last series um you you speak about well, what what you were just talking about there um with with crime and the different way that the genre goes uh, and and the different types of crime you know cozy crime and all of this this is your debut 16 horses before we really get into the kind of the nuts and bolts of what the story is so don't don't take me through that just yet if that's okay um how much had you analyzed and thought about crime fiction before you sat down to write 16 horses because it sounds to me like you are a much more student of the genre rather than other crime authors that I've spoken to before. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are people that are better read in crime than I am and, and so on. But I think um, I it was, it was interesting because I didn't, it's not like I sort of did my analysis first and then, you know, went to like, I, you know, I understand this now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and do this. I, uh, you know, as I was mentioning with the, the way it works in the class, I, I didn't even initially start writing a crime novel on purpose, if that makes any sense. So I, I, I sort of, there was a plot line in what I was working on that, that was going to involve a policeman and was going to involve a crime, but it wasn't going to, that was going to be one element rather than the focus. Um, and the more I found myself kind of entering that genre, um, the more I started kind of, I guess, thinking about what I'd been, you know, been doing elsewhere and thinking about my analysis. So um, I, my, my kind of history um, in my kind of early twenties was I was sort of going in an academic direction. I thought I might even become an academic. So I, I did like a, a master's and a PhD in English literature. 
um, and American literature was, was one of those aspects as well. Um, and in those, I looked at a lot of stories that kind of verged on horror or crime, I suppose. Um, and I looked a lot at structure um, and at how different elements would sort of manifest different results um, in the in the reader. Um, I think also um, television and film have been a huge influence on me as well. So um, I, you know, I do read books, obviously, uh, especially w with everything I was referencing. But um, I, I was pleasantly hearted, and I think um, I think Kazuo Shigeru, Maybe he didn't say this, so if he didn't say this, I'm sorry if you, <laughs> if you didn't actually say this. But I'm, I'm pretty sure he said something at an event I was at that, like, he, you know, he reads books, but he's actually really influenced and really interested in music. And, and that's a kind of big driving force in his work. And film and television are, are kind of huge influence on mine. Um, and stuff like True Detective, um, the work of David Lynch in particular, um, has has kind of been a big big driving force for me. And, and I think he in particular um, inspires me in how he kind of plays around with genre in that, you know, Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet and so on. They all take the form of detective stories, but they, they and especially are often quite conventional early on. Um, but then they kind of break out in different directions. Um, I, I don't think I quite am as ambitious as as he is in, in those directions I go, but um, that, that kind of playfulness um, and ability to co-command kind of certain kind of emotions and, and sense of dread and atmosphere um, were kind of things I, I did think about quite a lot um, before starting my work. Um, and I, I'm someone who quite enjoys trying to talk about this socially anyway, even if everyone doesn't always. Uh, like I have a whole theory about how fantasy relates to certain other genres as well that no one's really interested in. Um, that um, uh, that I can finally kind of manifest in a book rather than boring people in conversation with these with these thoughts. It can vary quite a lot, but I, I think the general shape of the day. So um, I tend to wake up about. 7 30 7 45 um my fiance is a veterinary surgeon um so she tends to kind of start work shortly after that and i quite like waking up at the same time otherwise i'll sort of just sleep in um until some kind of anonymous time so we wake up um have coffee so on she's quite quickly out the door um i feed my cats uh, their food they're all sort of pouring at the door and sort of meowing loads until i i do that um i will then it kind of varies depending upon the stage of where i'm at um sometimes i like starting the day by like watching a film or a portion of a film um that's if i'm kind of almost in a kind of trying to grab atmosphere and vibe mode um, and often there's particular ones that i've already watched so i'll often re-watch certain things um to kind of get a mood and often they're almost totally unrelated kind of plot wise to what i'm writing about so i think the other day i sort of watched a bit of 2000 on a space odyssey or something um in order to sort of get going and i often stop at the exact moment you know when you almost forget you're watching something and you're already in the space of it and you're feeling something quite different to ordinary life if, if i become aware i'm in that state i'll immediately stop and then start writing um and uh, sometimes I have weird realizations, though. Like I, I realized watching, because um, I, I accidentally watched um, There Will Be Blood, which is one of my favorite films, soon after watching uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And they are so similar that to the point where I would say that There Will Be Blood's primary influence is 2001 A Space Odyssey, even though they're in totally different genres. But um, I looked that up online and a few other people noticed a few things as well in that direction. So that's a whole, whole thing. So watch those two in quick succession. You'll notice a bunch of things. Um, but yeah, so I'll, I'll often do that. Um, then I'll sort of sit down. Um, if I'm in the late stage of a novel near the end, I'll often kind of um, reread the last few pages or do a bit of editing work before starting. Um, if I'm in an earlier stage, I will um, build towards whatever my current goal is. So um, I kind of do what's called a vomit draft where you just get stuff down on the page. Um, but this is very loose on the terms. So I, I will do after I have some of those initial plans, 
um, I'll, I'll sort of, the first um, kind of 20,000 words of the novel, I'll write from beginning to end on Microsoft Word or wherever, trying to polish it as almost like a prototype to myself. And if, I, if I'm in that stage, I'll be working on Microsoft Word um, for, for a few hours um, until I sort of get bored. Um, but if I'm in other stages, I'll, I'll have that initial portion, but I sort of go throughout and I'll do sort of bits of dialogue, bits of description, um, sometimes just a few lines on a, on a, on a scene saying this is going to happen in a cafe or something. And I'll write down a few elements, um, and I'll be working on those. Um, the current stage I'm at right now, which is probably a better representation of my current routine because it's all shifting is I, um, I bought this kind of book binder thing, which is quite fun. So it kind of thermally binds printouts and stuff. So quite, quite like playing around with different devices and stuff. And I, I bound the manuscript for what I'm working on at the moment. Um, so it's got the beginning bit is all kind of very polished and just kind of collapses into kind of uh, hard to understand fragments of random thoughts later on. Um, and I went throughout and I annotated this pretty thoroughly with pen. So I, I wrote all over that to kind of mark it up with whatever I, you know, ideas on the scenes, um, drawing inspiration from other stuff. So there's, there's mornings where I'm watching films, I'll sort of often have that in front of me. So if I have a character who I think has a similar feeling to me to another character, I'll, I'll watch a film with that person in it and I'll jot down like just thoughts as, as it goes. Um, this is especially important in lockdown, I think, because we're, I used to like writing in cafes or places where I could sort of observe people or be around people. Whereas at the moment, obviously you can't. So television and film is sort of acting as a replacement for that. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll work for a few hours. Um, Annotating um, at the moment, um, whenever there's a sunny day in particular, um, I will often in the early afternoon or late morning trying to camp to there's like a, a really nice kind of almost deserted um, kind of nature area, like two minutes walk from my house. So I'll sort of walk over there and um, do little bits of writing um, if there's some sunshine. Um, otherwise, um, after I hit my kind of initial wall, um, I'm not I'm not a very prolific writer or I, I can be. So in the in the average day. A good day i'll sort of write about 500 words um though i can be known to write like 4,000 words in a day especially near the end or if i'm in flow um I, I used to kind of you know you you hear writers online talking about how much they do and i kind of wonder when writers say they do loads like how they're not producing more books if they're producing that many words a day um but it my schedule seems to be going okay and um, i'm trying to be less hard on myself because often the i the work of the day I could be sitting there nonstop trying to write, but it's an idea I have in the shower that will be more consequential than anything else. So as long as something's happening for the book, I'll feel happy about that. But so I'll do all that. Um, I will then sort of uh, off whenever I've done those few hours, sometimes it's kind of early in the day. Sometimes it's a bit later. Um, I'll do housework. Um, I'll sort of play a bit with my cats because they're quite playful cats who kind of demand attention all the time. Uh, I go for walks and kind of hikes around the area. Um, where I often kind of make a few notes as well. Um, and I often play a bunch of games as well. Um, there was a whole period where I got a bit depressed in lockdown, I think. I can't remember when it was, but I spent a whole month playing um, the Dark Souls series of games, which is this very atmospheric, difficult game to play. And I sort of did snatches of writing between. So those days I was just kind of lying on the sofa, trying not to move, playing games, remove myself from reality as much as possible. And my word count actually skyrocketed. So it's, it's one of those really annoying things that whatever how organized my routine is, that month of just playing Dark Souls on the sofa, I think I produced like over a thousand words a day of just brief bits in between dying. I think I said to myself, every time I die in this game, I'm going to try and write a bit. And then that produced quite a lot of material. Um, and yeah, that, that's mostly my routine. Um, it can vary a bit, and especially recently with kind of um, 
promotion or planning in, in advance of 16 horses coming out, my attention has been diverted a bit towards other activities. Um, but that's mostly what I, I do with my time. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. We'll be back with Greg in just a sec. Uh, just a little poke in the direction of Patreon before we do. Uh, if you're enjoying the show, if you've learned anything in over 160 episodes that has helped the way that you write your stories and plan your day, if it's helped you be more efficient with your creativity, uh, you can send us a little bit of cash in return. Just a couple of dollars a month really helps us carry on. It helps us keep bringing you chats with as many authors as we can as often as possible. We've got the bonus now as well. Every Tuesday we do a random routine looking back, just a little bit of inspiration for you. Now, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. For that, you get little bits of merch, you get uh, bonus content as well, and there's also a way for your book to sponsor the show. So if you are working on something, if you'd like to plug your wares here, let me do that. Just sign up to help the show at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Greg Buchanan talking about his debut, 16 Horses. In this half, we chat about the, the big hook of the story and how it came through function rather than inspiration. Also, you can hear where the initial idea for the story came from, how a lot of it was down to his uni course. And we get back into it talking about, I guess, the long-term planning of writing, how he sets up the goal of when he wants to get stuff done. There have been periods of time where I'll sort of set up that, you know, by this day, I want to have gotten to this milestone of the book. Um, that only tends to work for me if I've made a kind of deal with someone else. So there, is, there are some writers I know where we'll sort of agree to swap like 5,000 words in a few weeks. Um, I'm almost always late by about a week, but I find those kind of deadlines sort of a do or die kind of I have to do this right now. That that will be quite motivating for like I have to try and get to about 1,000 words today. I have to get to about 2,000 words. Um, like what I... I've, um, 
if there's if it's kind of editing work I have to do, that's quite easy to plan as well. Like I'll try and get through this portion of the story today. If it's the raw initial drafting stage and I, I haven't made some kind of deal with someone else, I'm just doing it. Um, I tend to, especially recently, it'd be a bit easier on myself because when I was being hard on myself, it made no difference. So why be unhappy? Sort of the the, the outcome I sort of made with myself, which might be a, a kind of healthier way of viewing things than sort of beating myself up all the time like I used to. Um, but I, I, I'll have my current stage in the story, uh, I'll pay attention to how much I'm producing. So I'm sort of monitoring myself almost out of body, I guess. If I'm slowing down massively and I'm not enjoying writing, if I'm not enjoying what I did that day, I will take that as a sign to finish the scene, even if it's a rough kind of really quick kind of spurt, like set myself an hour, I'm going to finish the scene right now by hook or by crook and move on or perhaps jump to a different bit of the story. Um, I, I mostly write sequentially, but I can kind of often skip ahead by like 5,000 words and then come back um, rather than, I, I won't skip to the end of the story, but I'll skip ahead a bit. Um, and as long as I'm having that kind of forward momentum, I think I feel good about things. Um, and I don't feel like I'm, I'm stepping backwards in it. Um, I will sometimes set kind of mini deadlines, I suppose, for for the segment of the story. Um, I'll particularly do that if I'm close to finishing that segment. So I'm quite into like parts of books, like part one, part two. And if I'm in spitting distance of it, I'll often say, right, by the end of this week, I want to do that to the point of occasionally pulling, not exactly an all-nighter, but staying up to finish it can sometimes be a motivating way of cutting through the, the, the resistance to it. Um, and, and there's something about working kind of very late evening, that especially towards the end of the book. I sort of switch my schedule from what I described earlier. I'll sort of work nights where the world's very quiet and I'm in a very creative space um, that sort of really helps me focus. And knowing, you know, there's something very exciting, I think, about the first 20,000 words of a story. And I think there's something quite exciting about like the five or 20,000 words of a story. But I think in that kind of middle space, um, it's it's harder for me to kind of be hard on myself with deadlines because you've sort of just got to get through um, as uh, at whatever pace you can manage. Now, it never ceases to amaze me in, in, in many writers that I've chatted to how pretty much everyone has a different way of going about things. The way that you do it with the, uh, with the 20,000, the really tight, uh, well-formed, uh, curated uh, 20,000 words at the start, and then the way it, it's a bit, I guess, spotty thereafter when you're kind of having ideas and putting them together... How has that developed into the way that you work? Why don't you do what many, many people that aren't writers assume writers do and just sit there, page one, keep writing until you're on page 300. So why, why is this the way that you do it with a, with a quite a perfectly formed first 2000 and then you'll see what happens after that? Well, so, I mean, I do have, I mean, even with that first, so part of that first 20,000 words for me is a sort of a bit of a synopsis as well. So I'll, I'll have the end in mind, I'll have the key direction in mind. Um, but like, the you know, the kind of, I, I have the destination in mind, but the map is, is sometimes a bit more of a mystery beyond key beats. Um, so that's always important to me moving forward. But I think, um, I think it's multiple things. I think I want to know that the story works myself and sometimes i share that early bit with people as well like i want to know that works and, and this is actually what weirdly started my career so i, I mean i partly do this because it, it's what happened um, with the first bit so i um was doing that masters i mentioned that creative writing workshop and i had an opportunity to share some writing with a kind of agent mentor person it was supposed to be about ten thousand words um, and i i really worked on trying to polish that because that was sort of my opportunity to show the publishing industry and i ended up because 
um, I did a reading at a kind of end of master's thing um, where some agents and publishing people attended. I ended up having a bunch of requests for whatever I had done so far. And I tried to make, you know, I didn't know the first person was interested, but I tried to make things fair. So I was like, oh, um, I have this 10,000 words I'm working on. Can I send it to you when I'm sending it to the first person? Blah, blah, blah. Um, I ended up actually scrapping most of that, actually. Um, so I freaked out about a week before I was supposed to send that in and decided to do it all again beyond the initial scene with the horses. Um, and I ended up overshooting. So in, in about a month or two, I produced um, 16,000 words that I sent off. I was very lucky and I had a bunch of offers of representation for that, but the book wasn't finished. It was, it was that, it was my synopsis and it was all those fragments I'd written before, but it, it didn't exist. Um, and it ended up even being bought by the publishers on that basis. So I suppose the reason I'm doing that is, is that sort of what happened from a procedural standpoint with the first book beyond even my control. I mean, I, I wasn't in control of whether I sort of accepted those offers or not, but, 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 you know, I, I think I would have been foolish not to, and, and everyone was a great creative partner and was rebacking it and stuff. Um, but that kind of gave me confidence to do the whole thing and that I knew that the prototype of that worked. And, and for everyone, your, your, your attachment to characters, your attachment to story often happens in the first portion of a book. So if I know that's going to work and I can figure out how that's going to work, that will set up the rest of the story for me, just as I think it sets up the story in readers' minds, what happens early on. Um, so it kind of mirrors it. Um, why I keep doing this, or so why I'm sort of doing this again, um, I, I suppose I I wanted to to know myself that the story worked. I, I wanted to get a few people to say whether this was an interesting thing to do itself because I I didn't want to write something that people might not want to read. So that that was a you know, possibly a a thing I might need to move beyond getting that initial stage feedback. But it, it was important to me at least with this. Um, so I'll, I'll do that. Um, I think in terms of what it brings to the creative process, having that kind of stage of, of refining is, you know, I've heard from a lot of other writers where they say with your initial draft, just, you know, be happy to change character names as you go, change character backgrounds, just don't go back, just keep moving forward. And however hard I've tried, I can't do that. So I've, I've, I've tried to learn lessons from that. You know, like I was saying, with like, I do bits of, you know, my free write, I'll do drafts where I don't allow myself to edit, but never for such an extended amount of time where I... Um, would be, you know, I could change the entire storyline itself. Um, I, I, I would feel uncomfortable. Something about that would make me feel uncomfortable. Um, and I, I feel like I, I feel like I want to try and feel what I'm going to want the reader to feel when I'm writing. Like if I'm writing about something scary, I want to be thinking about scary things that scare me. If, if I want to feel the reader to feel curious, I need to feel curious as a writer. Um, and if I know I just changed huge elements and that those bits of the story don't exist, it's very hard for me to believe that I'm writing, you know, in the scene I'm writing, I, it's almost like I, I'm writing plot description rather than an actual living scene. It's, it's something a bit dead about it. I think if I, if I don't do that, um, so, um, but I, but I equally, the reason why I don't refine the whole thing as I go is I'm aware how much things change as you develop them. So, although it's, it, I mean, by the whole thing, when I, when I finish, you know, to, to try and avoid, although, I mean, I'm not going to say anything like about Game of Thrones, but um, to avoid what I think some people's response to that was where, you know, you like certain bits of it, but you think other bits didn't work out or, or whatever. Um it's useful to, I mean, it, you sort of can get away with it because no one, you know, I'm not releasing it sequentially. I'm not releasing it episodically. It all only exists when I choose to release it so I can go back and, and alter whatever I need to alter to, to reshape. Um, and I think, um, I think it's almost for my benefit as a writer to produce the best scenes and ideas I can. I have to believe that this is the book I'm writing and this is going to be the way it is as I'm writing it, but sort of with a removed awareness that I sort of try not to think about too much that I'm going to alter a lot of this afterwards. 
Um, I might move things around completely. I might cut characters. I might merge them. Um, but I, I, I feel I can only do that if I, if I gave it a good shot at the beginning, if that makes sense. In my interview for the UEA Masters, um, my writing was complimented quite a bit in terms of style. And I, I don't know whether this was some kind of interview gambit to try and see how I responded in kind of questioning. But um, I was you know, asked about like, what, what did I kind of care about my writing? Where, where was I emotionally on the page? What was I doing in terms of putting myself into the book? And, and that kind of question line stayed with me quite a lot because I hadn't thought as much about that. Um, and I started trying to put myself and things I cared about far more into the book to the point, but, but in, a, in, a, in a weird kind of great way, I guess, where I think one stage I sat down and I, and I wrote a page of list of emotions and kind of feelings, atmospheres, and then try to think of times in my life um, where I've either had something happen to me or, or observed stuff that relates to these things. Um, and that that kind of page was a huge kind of influence for a lot of the ideas and aspects of this novel starting. Um, and it's sort of a, a lot of kind of character studies I wrote about. So my main character, Alec, the the, the police officer, um, there's a scene with him in his house where he's alone and he's showering and he's putting the bins out and, and so on. That is almost a spin-off of one of the things I wrote about in that sheet and almost unrecognizably so. So if you've read that sheet, you'd be like, how did that relate to that? But those kind of core kind of thinking about life experiences, thinking about um, myself um, led to some character studies existing, which led to kind of ideas almost forming from the soup of that and that they sort of evolved from the kind of chaotic elements that I had um, formed there. So that, that's kind of one big aspect. Um, the other big aspect was, um, the other big moment um, was going to Great Yarmouth, um, sitting there, seeing kind of building facades with missing letters, um, seeing off season, um, a kind of pleasure town resort where no one was there, um, completely empty streets, completely empty arcades. Um, I can't remember if I saw a horse carriage with that. I might have invented that in my imagination. Um, but um, uh, there's kind of an American diner in the novel. That's where I, there was an American diner on the shore of um, Great Yarmouth with no one in it, where I actually wrote some of the novel, um, sort of sitting around. And I kept going back there, and, and that really formed the place formed from there. Um, and and those two kind of exercises um, almost merged together to to form the basis of this with with the the horse scene itself, um, emerging more from function. As I said, I, I wanted a kind of a start to the story that kind of built off tropes of kind of omens and, and you know, the death of animals kind of presaging a kind of wider social collapse almost um, led to the to that um, idea. And, and also we can thank the need of the, the UEA course for me to send in 5,000 words that week for, for assessment. Um, and that I, I had to produce something as well. Um, it's very helpful in, in me writing my novel. So, so what then happens next? You, you've got a sense of place, you've got a sense of character. You have a, the initial workings of a plot, which is, is talking about something wider thematically about that, I guess the state of the world and the environment and, and, and that's what's going on there. What, what happens next? before you sit down to type your, the very first sentence, I guess. So with all those kind of pieces in mind, that kind of framework, certain things suggested themselves in terms of the forward movement of the plot. So I guess this is where the kind of analytical side I mentioned, or you were asking me about with the crime genre and thinking about genre come in. So one, one thing that was huge, I, I'd sort of seen around the time that was hugely useful in thinking about the genre um, was... Um, 
the series American Vandal on Netflix, which is a kind of hilarious comedy series that loosely almost uses the style of making a murderer, but it's about kind of fairly silly cases like who drew some kind of private parts on a car or who you know, pooed somewhere, but they shouldn't have pooed in school. But it's treated utterly seriously in terms of the way it's filmed, um, but and which is part of the joke is the kind of mock mock severity of it. Um, but I I was I think I went on a trip at the time and I sort of watched that and I, I just thought about how cleverly it dissected true crime as a genre and how similar and how laid how much it laid bare how something like making a murderer worked. Um, how it evolved, how it presented things, how it built itself. Something about parody and satire like makes a lot of things clear about how genres work. So I, I, I was thinking about those things, and you know, my partner in particular, she's hugely into true crime. So and I like some of it, but I sort of absorb a lot of it through osmosis in the background. Um, she, she often has it on whilst napping, which I don't, don't know what can do to someone's subconscious to just constantly hear stuff about that uh, whilst whilst you're sleeping. But um, I sort of hear it then, um, and I, I made a bunch of notes on this, trying to like analyze that whilst I was on a plane ride and was thinking, you know, I was in that place where, as you say, I was sort of heading towards starting this novel and thinking about that. And I sort of almost thought about my plot alongside that. Cause I mean, it's, I, I, I'm not aiming for like true realism, but how real, not just how real crimes work, but how real crimes are repackaged by culture and, and perceived by people is, is, is really interesting. Um, and I thought about that in terms of my own plot, um, and it almost, it's like almost doing a, filling in a puzzle or an equation. Like you've got certain elements, you're trying to find X or Y, like what works. And in my imagination, certain things just presented themselves quite clearly about how this would work, not just according to how crimes work and this genre works, but how pacing works and how, if you do this, you should have this, um, from almost from a taste perspective as well. Like in stories, I like, I, you know, I wouldn't be happy leaving it like that. I'd want to do something with it. Um, and this led to a kind of enough of a plot plan for me to then have a, a direction I was heading in with the rest of the story. And I, I then um, planned a trip back to Great Yarmouth to do a lot of the initial drafting. So that that um, 16,000 word segment I mentioned, um, a lot of that was drafted. It's almost on location um, in, in, a, in a place much like what I was writing about. Um, and that was a hugely helpful visit. So, so actually being able to observe and, and start um, moving beyond just a, a sense of place or, or those notes to writing where I was, the kind of place I was actually, it was actually set um, was hugely inspiring and, and helped me get going. And now lastly, just generally about storytelling, really. I mean, this is your debut novel, but you've written across comics and video games uh, on No Man's Sky as well. What is consistent uh, in in the way that you tell stories across whatever outlet that you're working on? Sure. So, I mean, ideally, because, you know, with contract work, it can you often write about different things in different ways according to what the client wants. It's not entirely just like novels where I can more do what I want. Um, what, I, what I try to do and what I think the best things I've done have been received as is I try and make it emotionally driven whatever I'm writing about. Um, so emotion is more important and atmosphere are more important to me than genre and a lot of other aspects. Um, that's a key continuing thing. Um, in terms of how other people have received my work, the word existential has been used multiple times. So it's been used about 16 horses, but it was also used about my, uh, the No Man's Sky story updates, uh, that I gave to the game and even some kind of comedy work I did for the Alexa platform, um, or voice control games. So existential was used once again. So I, I have kind of a, an existential, sad, almost surreal aspects 
atmosphere um, that has a sense of dread, but also a sense of kind of, it's going to sound like a kind of bit of oxymoron, I guess, but a sense of sadness, but also fun and play. So um, kind of, I guess, kind of like dancing at the end of the world almost is a kind of feel that I, I end up one way or the other going towards. Um, and there's a kind of a, almost an apocalyptic dimension to a lot of things I write as well, even if there is. And, and by all this, I'm sort of mentioning horror without supernatural. I'm mentioning apocalyptic without any actual ends of the world. But the the, the, the feeling of those things um, I sort of keep bouncing towards, which which I think a lot of friends and family have been very surprised by because um, a lot of them didn't engage as much because not all of them are gamers with with the response to stuff like No Man's Sky, but with a lot of the early kind of author quotes coming out about um, 16 Horses, calling it kind of disturbing and disconcerting. I, I, I'm a generally a, a reasonably kind of laid back, um, uh, cheerful person um, in at least my day-to-day life and conversation. So um, I think a lot of them have been kind of surprised or, or kind of wondering if I'm okay in terms of how everyone's responding to this stuff. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to uh, Greg Buchanan for coming on. You can get a copy of his debut crime, thriller, genre-twisting 16 Horses in the podcast notes wherever you're listening and over at writersroutine.com. Next week, we're chatting to Janet Skeslian charles about her new historical thriller that spans timeframes and countries. It's the Paris Library. Uh, In the meantime... Have a look at the London Book Fair online, the seminar that I'm hosting on uh, Tuesday the 29th, Playing With Prose. At least you might get a nosy into my flat. And if you can support us on Patreon, I'd love you to do that. Patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Give us a follow on Twitter too. And I'll see you next week with Janet Skesley and Charles. I might see you on Tuesday at the London Book Fair. Until then, make sure you follow us and I'll see you then. Bye. <laughs>